At the Democratic presidential debate in Iowa, Joe Biden said that he never intended to authorize the Iraq war when he voted for it back in 2002. Joe and I listened to what Dick Cheney and George Bush and Rumsfeld had to say. I thought they were lying. I didn't believe them for a moment. I took to the floor. I did everything I could to prevent that war. Joe saw it differently. Vice President Biden. I was asked to bring 156,000 troops home from that war, which I did. I led that effort. It was a mistake to trust that they weren't going to go to war. They said they were not going to go to war. They said they were just going to get inspectors in. The world, in fact, voted to send inspectors in, and they still went to war. From that point on, I was in the position of making the case that it was a big, big mistake. And from that point on, I voted to, I, I moved to bring those troops home. But Biden's explanation that he just wanted to authorize UN weapons inspectors, not a war, is undermined by his own statements. Speaking in July 2003, months after the U.S. invaded Iraq, Biden praised then-President George W. Bush and said he would have voted the exact same way. Some of my own party have said that it was a mistake to go to Iraq in the first place and believe that it's not worth the cost, whatever benefit may flow from our engagement in Iraq. But the cost of not acting against Saddam, I think, would have been much greater. And so is the cost, and so will be the cost, of not finishing this job. The President of the United States is a bold leader and he is popular. Nine months ago, I voted with my colleagues to give the President of the United States of America the authority to use force. And I would vote that way again today. Well, to discuss Joe Biden's actual record when it comes to U.S. regime change in Iraq, I spoke earlier to Scott Ritter. He is a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, and the author of the book Deal Breaker, Donald Trump and the Unmaking of the Iran Nuclear Deal. Scott Ritter, welcome to Pushback. You have extensive experience, not just in Iraq as a former U.N. weapons inspector, but also with Joe Biden specifically. What did you make of his rationale today, his explanation for his vote back in 2002 to authorize the Iraq war? Well, it's a completely disingenuous um, uh, you know, a statement. Uh, Joe Biden is a man who, from the very beginning, um, was a proponent of regime change in Iraq. He wasn't a proponent of uh, the disarmament of Iraq. Uh, when, when I first uh, encountered Joe Biden back in 1998, he, um, you know, he strangely, uh, opposed the notion of inspection-driven confrontation uh, with Iraq, um, not because it was bad policy, but because it was um, something to put his political master, then President Bill Clinton, uh, in, in a bad light. So his, his entire position in 1998 was you know, a, a political position, not one based upon a reality. And yet, when we take a look at his vote in September of 2002, uh, he had gone completely 180 degrees. He now was speaking about the need for uh, compelled access to uh, inspection sites by inspectors, um, or else there would be, you know, consequences. But the the, the problem was, 1998, you know, we had viable weapons inspections and in, uh, you know, capability in place, and he wouldn't let them do their job. When he articulated uh, the sudden uh, conversion to supporting inspectors in 2002, there no there were no weapons inspectors 
uh, in Iraq. So now inspections were be, literally being used as a false flag to justify military action for the purpose of regime change. And, and that's what Biden needs to be honest about. He never supported the weapons inspection process. He always supported regime change. And to say something different today, it's just a bald-faced lie. So let me go to a clip of Biden uh, from July 2003. This is after uh, the Iraq invasion, well after uh, his vote to authorize the Iraq invasion. And, and contrary to what he says now about how he never uh, voted for war, he just voted for, to give the U.S. leverage to enforce inspections. This is Joe Biden after the Iraq war saying that he would have voted the exact same way. Nine months ago, I voted with my colleagues to give the president of the United States of America the authority to use force. And I would vote that way again today. It was a right vote then and to be a correct vote today. So that's Joe Biden in July 2003, a blatant contradiction of what he's trying to say now. Now, Skywriter, you were in Iraq before the invasion, uh, trying to secure inspections. And what do you make of Joe Biden's argument now that the Iraq war vote, the authorization to use vote, the authorization to use force was just a way of putting pressure on Iraq, giving uh, the U.S. leverage to enforce inspections? We, we have to remember that in, in 2002, you know, Joe Biden was, you know, the minority leader uh, in the Senate uh, on the armed service or on the Foreign Relations Committee. This is a man who was plugged in. He was in the know. Um, and we also have to put this in perspective. The, the, the debate taking place within the Bush administration at the time was not whether or not to support inspections. It was about going to war. Um, in April of 2002, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who was a deputy secretary of defense at the time, and um, uh, uh, Richard Armitage traveled to NATO to try and strong arm NATO into supporting an American push for war on Iraq. And uh, it was interesting because at that time I was actually, uh, NATO reached out to me and asked me to come and, uh, and, and, and give a presentation to counter that. And I did so. Uh, and, and as a result of my presentation, nine members of NATO signed formal letters to the United States condemning or uh, complaining that they had been lied to by Wolfowitz and Armitage and asking the United States to, um, you know, to, to explain why they, you know, why this was, was, was taking place. Uh, I was rewarded by that, by the way, with Nicholas Burns, the ambassador uh, to NATO at the time, um, condemning me as a known enemy of the United States. Um, but when I came back from the NATO trip, I, I, it, it hit me that you know, maybe it was time for the United States Senate to have uh, hearings, very serious hearings, along the lines of what had transpired in September 1998 to address this very issue. Um, what is the threat posed by Iraq in terms of weapons of mass destruction? Is it worthy of military intervention? I reached out to um, you know some of the, the critical senators there, uh, Senator Chuck Hagel, uh, uh, John Kerry, Richard Luger, um, and Joe Biden to try and get uh, to see if there, there could be a hearing. I was told by everybody at the time that uh, it's not the right time for hearings. Uh, war isn't on the horizon. It's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's just no need. Um, I actually spent uh, all of June and July of 2002 traveling around the United States to the, the various capital cities of these various senators, meeting with the uh, editorial boards of the of the leading newspapers, uh, trying to get them to uh, to write op-eds in favor of hearings, and many of them did. And uh, by the end of July, um, I guess uh, 
Richard Lugar and uh, Joe Biden had felt the pressure because suddenly they wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, uh, reversing their position. Suddenly hearings became the thing that had to happen. And it was a very rushed hearing. They, uh, they, 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 they scheduled them for early August. Um, I, I tried very hard to be, to be um, summoned by the Senate for hearings. They refused to have me on. Instead, they, they brought in a, a, a panel of witnesses who basically rubber-stamped uh, their case that uh, Iraq was pursuing weapons of mass destruction, that weapons inspections didn't work, and that the only, uh, just the, uh, the only possible solution to this problem was getting rid of Saddam Hussein. So it became a, a rubber stamp for war. I want to go back to uh, those hearings that you mentioned in 1998, where you appeared before the Senate and were questioned by Joe Biden in a moment. But first, I want to play more from his Brookings speech in July 2003, because, again, this is after the war. The U.S. has gone to war and Joe Biden, far from what he's saying now about his efforts to bring the troops home and that he didn't support the war, uh, he is saying that he would have voted the exact same way at that point, which was after the invasion. And in stating his rationale, he gave a bit of history of what he said was the justification for going to war on Iraq. And what has he done? He violated every commitment that he made. He played cat and mouse with the weapons inspectors. He failed to conduct, he failed to account for the huge gaps in weapons declarations that were documented by UN weapons inspectors and submitted by them to the UN Security Council in 1998, and every nation in that council believed he possessed those weapons at that time. He refused to abide by any conditions. And when he refused, it became, in my view, the fundamental right and obligation of the international community to enforce the commitments this man who invaded another country who was driven back, sued for peace, and the conditions of his remaining in power were that he abide by the UN resolutions. So that's Joe Biden in July 2003. Scott Redder, he mentions there UN weapons inspectors, specifically at a time when you were there, up until 1998 when you resigned. What do you make of his rendering of the history that you were directly involved in? Well, it's curious because, I mean, first of all, you know, the weapons inspection process was a, a, a it, it, it's not a black and white situation. As weapons inspectors, Joe Biden is correct. We were um, tasked with hunting down weapons of mass destruction, and Iraq was obligated to allow us in. And there was indeed a cat and mouse game that was played between the Iraqis and the weapons inspectors. From 1996 to 1998, I was involved in uh, a dozen uh, major confrontations with the Iraqi government over the issue of access of inspectors. And I'm not talking about, you know, gentlemen-like confrontation. I'm talking about situations where guns were put to the heads of inspectors. My head, my brains were threatened to be blown against the wall. Machine gun weapons were fired at my inspectors. Uh, you know, this, this was not child's play here. Every time we went into Iraq to carry out these inspections, we were convinced that we had the weight of the Security Council backed by the military force of the United States behind us, that if Iraq didn't allow us in, we would, there would be hell to pay. The Chapter 7 resolution of, a secure, of the Security Council sort of promises that. But time after time after time, we went to Iraq. We were blocked. We came back. Nothing happened. Then we had to go back to Iraq 
and jack up the pressure all over again. And this time the Iraqis are emboldened by the fact that nothing happened. So they, they push back even harder. It became a very difficult uh, process. But what's missing from this equation is at the same time we were trying to gain access to these weapons sites, the United States was seeking to overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein. In fact, in 1996, June 1996, the United States, the CIA, used a weapons inspection team that I led as a vehicle to promote a coup against uh, Saddam Hussein. I was unaware of, uh, of what the CIA was up to, uh, but it became apparent afterwards that we had been the unwitting dupes of the CIA to facilitate a coup to overthrow Saddam. The Iraqis were fully aware of this, so every time they were blocking my inspection team, they weren't necessarily blocking us because they were hiding weapons of mass destruction. They were blocking us because we were coming very close to the security apparatus of the president of Iraq. It's a very, very complicated situation, which required purity of mission on the part of the inspectors. And this is what I always articulated for, that we had to go into Iraq armed only with the highest quality intelligence that Iraq was in noncompliance. And then we would pursue that. If the Iraqis blocked us, we had a clear case, a clear cut case of obstruction. And then the Security Council uh, would act. Uh, and this is why I resigned in August of 1998, because I was ready to carry out such an inspection. And the United States government blocked it, um, basically saying we're not willing to back the weapons inspectors. And then you have to ask yourself the question, why? Is it because they don't want to go to war with Iraq or is it because they made a decision that the weapons inspection process was coming too close to the truth, that if we carried out these inspections, we might actually prove that Iraq had no more weapons of mass destruction uh, in their arsenal, and therefore economic sanctions would have to be lifted, and therefore Saddam Hussein would be allowed to exist. That wasn't the policy of the United States. Their policy was to continue sanctions, starve out the regime, to overthrow Saddam Hussein, and inspections had become inconvenient for the United States. So when I resigned, I went to the Senate, I confronted the Senate with this, this contradiction that you authorized us to carry out inspections and now you weren't letting us do these inspections. And yet you continue to claim that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. And without inspections, this threat looms out there. And then what are you going to do about it? And we're going to play uh, in a moment uh, some clips of your appearance in the Senate in September 1998, which includes your exchange with Joe Biden. But, but quickly, after you resigned in August 98, a few months later in December 98, if I have the timeline correct, that's when Clinton bombs Iraq with Operation Desert Fox. And contrary to some propaganda that we've seen that it was Saddam that kicked out the weapons inspectors, it was, uh, if I have it right, in line with what you're saying, it was actually Clinton who ordered out the inspectors, right? Correct. This, uh, again, this comes in line with what I was talking about, the legitimacy of the inspection process. If we back up to August of 1998, uh, the inspection mission that I was uh, tasked with leading uh, had been given intelligence by the British government, a very sensitive human intelligence, uh, about uh, hidden missile components um, in a Ba'ath Party headquarters located in downtown Baghdad. And so my proposal was we would send inspectors in and surround the facility and just lock ourselves down uh, and demand access. And the Iraqis would either have to give us access or take us hostage. And that would you know, bring this issue to a head. Um, it's, a, it's a very controversial inspection. Uh, the United States at first approved it, but then when my inspection team arrived in, uh, in, in Iraq in August, um, they backed down. 
and they basically pulled the inspectors out. And this is what prompted my, my resignation. The reason why I bring up this inspection is in de- when we were given that information by the British, we were told we had to respond immediately because it was perishable intelligence. Uh, this was from a human source. The, the materials in question were moved every few weeks, which meaning meant that if we didn't strike now, it wasn't going to be there later on. And yet in December, the inspection that prompted the, the crisis was of this very same facility. The United States insisted that they take my inspection that was run, it was supposed to be run in August, and run it in December. This time not to find weapons, but to provoke a crisis. Uh, interestingly enough, when the inspection team arrived at the facility, the Iraqis were willing to let them in, but only in a limited number. At that point in time, the United States intervened and said, you have to pull the inspectors out now. They accused Iraq of not cooperating, but it's a lie. The Iraqis were actually cooperating, saying, you can come in, but we don't want 20 people coming into the Ba'ath Party headquarters. Why don't you bring in a smaller team? And um, Richard Butler, together, who was the executive chairman at the time, together with Madeleine Albright and other members of the Clinton administration, realized that this was you know, the base of the Iraqis had called their bluff. Uh, and they said, no, get the inspectors out. Clinton ordered the weapons inspectors out of Iraq so that he could bomb Iraq. Operation Desert Fox, a 72-hour bombing campaign, wasn't about supporting the weapons inspectors. What it did is kill the weapons inspectors. How did it do that? It did it by using information that in teams such as my own had gathered about Saddam's security, about the presidential palaces. And they used this information in an effort to assassinate Saddam Hussein. Indeed, one of the first targets struck were, was a villa outside of Tikrit, where my team had found out that Saddam liked to take his mistress. And apparently they had uh, you know, signals, uh, intelligence information from a capability that I installed in Iraq that showed that Saddam was at this, this place. Um, and that's, that's why they launched the attack, to try and kill Saddam Hussein and to decap- decapitate the regime. Of course, it failed. But now the Iraqis are smart enough to know that the information that was used to sustain this action came from weapons inspectors, and therefore they could never again trust weapons inspectors. So not only did the Clinton administration kick them out in December 1998, they created the conditions under which the Iraqis would never again allow them back in. Wow. All right. So let's just uh, rewind a couple of months earlier. So you have that bombing by Clinton in December 1998. By the way, on the eve of his impeachment vote, uh, but a few months earlier, you are called before the Senate and, uh, to testify about your uh, weapons inspections inside Iraq. This is shortly after you have resigned from your position. And you are questioned by Joe Biden, then a senator. So let's uh, play some of that exchange. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you should be the one to be able to decide when to pull the trigger? No, sir. Uh, Isn't that what this is about? If you you adopt the position that any time you are denied, you, your particular, there's four groups out there, inspectors, you're the group you headed, any time you are denied that that ipso facto requires the United States and the Security Council to act on what they said they would do, which is to use whatever means necessary to take on Saddam Hussein so you can get into that particular facility. Is that not correct? Is that not your position? Mr. Senator, I have a job to do, or I had a job to do, and that was to disarm Iraq in accordance with the provisions no, of I relevant got that. Co- resolutions. With all due respect, if you, I'm not trying to be confrontational. I'm trying to get this as clear as I can. I really mean this now. 
You have an absolute logic. You put together a very tight syllogism here. You've indicated that your job is to disarm. The only way you can disarm is to have access. The only way you can have access is either with permission on the part of Iraq or if denied, forced access, right? Compelled access. Compelled. Yes. Well, okay. Compelled. You sound like the lawyer and I sound like the military guy. I mean, uh, you know, compelled where I come from, when my old man said you're compelled, it meant I was forced. I mean, it was a real simple proposition. It wasn't, you know, wasn't much to debate. Now, there is a clear logic to that. And that's what I mean when I say I respect your position. But that means that whenever you choose a target that warrants inspection, and you are denied that ipso facto, at that moment, the only way your position can be satisfied or sustained is if the UN Security Council or the United States, acting unilaterally, uses force to guarantee access. Is not that true? Yes, sir. Now, that means that you get to choose the time and place when we would use force, if we use force. No, sir. Of course you do. If you choose the site and it's denied. And we coordinate with the member states to include the United States. Exactly. And prior to us going in, we have their agreement that this indeed is an inspection worth doing. Okay. Inspection worth doing. Everybody's agreed it's worth doing. And it gets stopped. Yes, sir. At that moment, we're an automatic pilot as far as you're concerned. Period. So that is from a September 1998 exchange between our guest, Scott Ritter, and Joe Biden. Scott Ritter, talk to us about uh, what Biden is saying to you here. Well, it's precisely what we discussed beforehand. Um, you know, it, it's if he thinks that weapons inspectors created themselves. We, that's not what happened. The United States, back in April of 1991, uh, pushed the Security Council of the United Nations to pass a resolution 687 requiring, requiring Iraq to be disarmed. This was a Chapter 7 resolution, uh, which was linked to the ceasefire resolution, the, the, you know, the ceasefire from the Gulf War just a few months earlier. Meaning that if Iraq didn't agree to disarm, the, all bets are off. The ceasefire is ended. Military action continues. Iraq is eliminated. Um, you know, that was that was the deal. And so inspections were created uh, to, you know, to go in and implement this resolution with the weight of the United States behind them. Um, when you know, initially the inspections were just supposed to be a sort of a gentlemanly exercise. Uh, the Iraqis provided a declaration, uh, and then we would verify that declaration. But it became apparent that the Iraqis were lying early on. They were. They they hit over 100 missiles. They hit tons of chemical weapons. They denied a nuclear program. They denied a biological weapons program. And it was the duty of the inspectors, inspection teams that myself and others led, to uh, uncover these lies and find out what actually happened. And we did to, we did this, but this process became increasingly confrontational. Now, what Biden is missing out on here is that I didn't just sit there one day and say, I'm going to do an inspection. No, we got viable intelligence information from member states, the United States, the British, the Germans, the Russians, the French, the Israelis. This all came in to a cell that I that I led. And I would sift through this information and find that information which was actionable, meaning that it had enough detail that would enable us to carry out an inspection. And then we would coordinate this with the United States. I traveled down to Washington, D.C. more times than I think to meet at the State Department, to meet at the Pentagon, 
to meet at the White House, to meet with the CIA, to coordinate these inspections, to get the expertise necessary to carry out this inspection. We had Delta Force operatives embedded in our team and Delta Force teams were deployed in the region because many of these inspections, we thought we were going to be taken hostage. So to pretend that the United States was taken by surprise because Scotty Boy wanted to go on an inspection is an absolute lie, a misrepresentation of fact. The United States was aware of every inspection, they supported every inspection, and they initially were prepared to back up at least our inspections with, with, with a modicum of force. Um, but later on, as these, these inspections became more and more confrontational, the United States started to withdraw its support. They would give us the green light for the inspection, but they stopped providing um, you know, these, these covert operatives, primarily because we exposed the fact that they were using these covert operatives had a double mission to support us in case we're taken hostage, but also to be prepared to uh, gather intelligence on behalf of the United States to assassinate Saddam Hussein. So, you know, the, the, the success of the weapons inspection program um, was, was not something that the United States uh, wanted. We came very close to proving that Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. Indeed, uh, you know, I'll just fast forward a little bit. Uh, in, in, in 2000, the summer of 2000, you know, this whole issue was up to for debate again in the lead up to the presidential elections. Um, and I felt that it, the, the, the case for you know, Iraq having weapons of mass destruction being misrepresented and that there was the need for some sort of Senate intervention. Uh, and I met with Chuck Hagel. I met with um, uh, 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 Joe Biden's staff member. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 I met with Hagel after um, speaking in, uh, in, in Omaha to a bunch of his supporters uh, who, who, who ended up calling him, uh, imploring him to meet with me. And we did for an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, Hagel Chuck, said Hagel, he, Chuck Hagel, who was then a senator, uh, later on went on to be the defense secretary. Secretary of Defense, Obama. right. He was, a, he, was a, he was a Vietnam War veteran, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, uh, veteran of, the, uh, of Vietnam, uh, and a man who, who you know, had his, his head screwed on tight. He, he was no pacifist, but he was a realist. And, he, and, he, and he, he didn't want to go to war with Iraq based upon a false premise. Um, and, and he 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 and also um, John Kerry implored me to uh, to put my my position in writing. And I did so. I wrote an article in, that was published in Arms Control Today, which is a major uh, journal of arms control, the Arms Control Association, uh, entitled the 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 the, the, the case for the qualitative disarmament of Iraq. And what I was trying to say is that even though we couldn't account for everything, what we could account for was enough to make a conclusion that Iraq didn't have a viable weapons of mass destruction program. And this is what I wanted to be debated amongst the Senate. Now, at the end of my, uh, my, my Senate testimony in 1998, um, I, I had a meeting with Joe Biden uh, he, where he apologized for, um, for some of the things he said to me. Well, and, look, before you uh, go on, let me just play a bit what I suspect he apologized for. This is okay, more sure. from that exchange in 1998. I respectfully suggest they have a responsibility slightly above your pay grade. Slightly above your pay grade. To decide whether or not to take the nation to war alone. Or to take the nation to war partway. Or to take the nation to war half halfway. That's a real tough decision. That's why they get paid the big bucks. That's why they get the limos and you don't. I mean this sincerely. I'm not trying to be flip. Because I think, and that's what I said at the outset, the reason why I'm glad you did what you did, we should come to our milk. 
we should make a decision. But in terms of whether the Secretary of State has no more to consider than you do as the arms inspector. You didn't get in, didn't get my job done, get me in. Period. You made the deal, right? That's the deal. A deal's a deal. Get me in. Scott Ritter, I'm ready to go. It's not how it works. Now, maybe it should work that way. But I, wouldn't you acknowledge that if you were President of the United States or the Secretary of State, you'd sit there and say, now, okay, old Scotty boy didn't get in. We said he should get in. We want him to get in. It's important that he does get in. They're not going to let him in. So what are we going to do now? We know that France and Russia aren't going to be with us. We're quite confident China's not. We've already run those traps. They're not there. We're not sure where the United States Senate is, but have at it, boys. Go get them. And by the way, Scott and the boys say air power is not enough. <clears throat> I think it's a legitimate debate, Scott, or, uh, Major. I think it's a legitimate debate. But I don't think we should be putting it in the context of you have somebody up there at state saying, look, how can we weasel out of this agreement? We want to let this guy out there hanging. We're not, we're not this. It's a very practical political decision. Same kind of decision General Powell made. Same kind of decision President Bush made. Every president, every secretary of state has to do it. Like I said, they get paid more than you. Their job's a hell of a lot more complicated than yours. They may have made the wrong decision, and you brought it to light. We should address it. We should say straight up where we are, and we should do it. And for that, I thank you. But it's above your pay grade. So that is Joe Biden. Scott Ritter refers multiple times to Scotty Boy telling you that the decision about uh, forcing inspections is above your pay grade, but yet you're saying he apologized to you for that. Well, he he didn't apologize for his position. He he continued to uh, to maintain that his position was correct. But you know he was heavily criticized. There were uh, op eds written in the Washington Post. Uh, there were there were other commentary throughout mainstream media, uh, heavily criticizing him for his flippant tone. Uh, and indeed, in the in the hearing, uh, Chuck Hagel, John McCain, and others. Um, came to my defense uh, saying that maybe if people had listened to people of my pay grade back in Vietnam, we wouldn't have had the situation we had back there. So uh, I think Biden realized he was in a political quandary. So he wrote a, a letter to the Washington Post apologizing for any uh, perceived insults. And then he followed that up by inviting me to his um, to his office for a meeting. And, and in October of 1998, I went to his office and we had a, a, a sit down, a, a private sit down where we discussed you know, Iraq, the complexity of the situation, et cetera. And uh, at the end of that meeting, um, when I left, he sent me a letter and uh, he thanked me for the meeting. He thanked for a frank and honest uh, exchange of ideas. And at the bottom of the letter, he said, uh, you know, this is a conversation that, that that's going to be need to have again. Um, you know, I look forward to uh, to talking to you in the future uh, to discuss this issue. And, and I had that letter. So now we fast forward to 2000. And I called Joe Biden's office and I reminded him of the existence of this letter. And I said, it's imperative that uh, that we that we have this discussion. Uh, I've read this article in arms control today. I'd like the senator to, uh, to to read it, to consider it and maybe work with Chuck Hale to come up with a um, some sort of you know political compromise that uh, avoids uh, an unnecessary war over the false premise that Iraq is in violation of its disarmament obligation. Uh, Biden wouldn't meet with me. Uh, but what he did do is he sent his senior staff member, a guy named uh, Edward P. Levine, uh, to, to meet with me. And we, and we met in the, uh, the, 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 the Senate um, uh, minority staff's office in the, in the Senate office building. 
It was a very interesting meeting because uh, when I started by presenting him with the article, and I also brought some documents from my time as an inspector to back it up, he immediately confronted me, not saying that I was lying, but saying that by writing this article and presenting these documents the way I have, I was a traitor. I was committing treason, and I should be arrested for 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 these charges. And um, I, I, I uh, it got heated. I reminded him that I had been a commissioned officer in the Marine Corps and that I had been to war, and that if he wanted to take it to that level, um, it would get very violent very quick, and it wouldn't be in his favor. Um, he backed down, and, and for the next hour or so, we had as genteel of a discussion as one can have under those circumstances, um, and, 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 and we discussed things. And it became imperative that he couldn't contradict my, my, my facts. He couldn't contradict the information that I was putting forward. But what he said was, was telling, because when I said it's important that maybe Biden sits down with Hagel and they talk, he said, we're not going to get ahead of the president on this issue, meaning that Bill Clinton had already made a decision that, um, you know, they were going to find Iraq guilty of weapons of mass destruction. And what was important about this, a lot of people forget that in uh, at the end of uh, or in the middle of 1998, um, Bill Clinton signed the, the Iraq Liberation Act, which made it policy of the United States to remove Saddam Hussein from power. All they needed now was an excuse. And this excuse was going to become weapons of mass destruction. So already in the summer of 2000, uh, the United States was telegraphing its intent to remove Saddam Hussein through force of arm, using weapons of mass destruction as the excuse. And, and this is why I, I felt it necessary to uh, to reach out to the senators. Uh, but as Chuck Hagel said earlier, um, don't expect any profile encouraged moments from anybody in the Senate about issues uh, relating to Iraq. And sadly, he was correct. He said that to you personally? <laughs> said it straight to me after our hour and 45 minute discussion. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Well, look, let's... I, 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 I had said that um, if he was open to it, I would reach out to, uh, to to Democrats like Kerry and Biden and see if uh, they'd be willing to meet with him. And he said, go, go, go try it. But don't expect any profile and courage moments. And he was absolutely right. Uh, you know, and, and as Edward Levine proved, uh, Joe Biden wasn't about to uh, to do anything that damaged his uh, his political stature. But yet, you know, we should say, fast forward two years later in 2002, Hagel was among the senators joining Biden and Kerry to vote for the Iraq war. Um, but on that... Don't expect any profile and courage moments. So he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. <laughs> talking about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, except, except for Bernie Sanders and a few brave others. True, um, true. So, but let's talk about that point in time now, because, so it's, it's two years later, it's the summer and fall of 2002, Bush administration is making its push for war, uh, and you are starting to speak out publicly against it. And Joe Biden, after meeting with you or having a staffer meet with you and writing you a letter a few years earlier, thanking you for your input, now Joe Biden is once again holding hearings uh, as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And you have had four years earlier that exchange when, uh, when you came before the Senate to testify. We're now we're in the fall of 2002. Does Joe Biden invite you to come back to the Senate? No. Uh, well, first of all, in the, as, a, as, a, as a, I think I previously said, um, in, in June and July of 2002, after I came back from NATO, I, I made a concerted effort to get um, the Senate to engage on this issue uh, because I, I, you know, the, 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 the NATO briefing that was delivered by the Bush administration made it clear that uh, war wasn't a hypothetical that war was uh, probable, that this was the, the, the policy that the Bush administration was uh, was taking our country on. And yet there was no engagement by Congress. I mean, you know, uh, 
Article one makes it clear in the Constitution that Congress is the, the body empowered to declare war. And yet the decisions for going to war were already being made by the executive branch. So I felt it imperative that Congress engage on this. And uh, I spent the, the first part of the summer traveling around trying to get support. Um, I was told by Biden, by Kerry, by everybody that uh, there was no need for hearings, that there, there was no push for war, that this wasn't uh, an issue. But finally, I, I think in large part because of the pressure was brought to bear by um, you know, the, the editorial boards of newspapers in the capital cities of the, the states where these senators resided, uh, they realized that maybe we need to have a hearing. And so on July 31st, Biden and, uh, and, and, and Richard Luger wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, suddenly doing 180 degrees saying, yeah, we're going to have a hearing. Um, but it was a rubber stamp. It was a kangaroo court. Um, I put pressure on them to have me invited. I, I offered about myself. I had many uh, peace groups uh, lay, uh, lobby on my behalf, but they, they refused to bring me in. Instead, they brought in a series of witnesses who uh, manufactured a case for war uh, built based upon um, you know, Iraq having weapons of mass destruction, um, and then also articulating that um, you know removing Saddam Hussein was the only way to uh, to resolve this issue. Um, ironically, when you know this 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 briefing made it clear that the Senate was heading towards a vote uh, where they would empower the president with uh, certain war powers. Um, but what was missing from this equation was a viable inspection regime. You know, in 1998, when I testified for the Senate. Uh, the United Nations Special Commission still existed. Uh, we still had on the books a couple hundred inspectors who could be brought to bear on an inspection problem in very short order. But in September 2002, there was no inspection regime. There was a replacement regime called UNMOVIC, the uh, Monitoring and, and Verification Commission, but they weren't allowed back into Iraq. Iraq hadn't uh, agreed to their return. So suddenly we have a situation where there are no inspections. Uh, we're making a case for war based upon the premise that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, yet there's no way to verify that. And nobody was pushing for the return of inspectors. So um, I actually made a decision at the time, a very risky decision, to travel to Iraq in an effort to implore the Iraqi government to uh, allow weapons inspectors to return. Um, I, I went to Iraq in uh, the middle of September. I spoke before the Iraqi parliament. Uh, it was televised on my insistence around the world. They had no uh, ability to... Uh, to, to edit what I was going to say. They had no idea what I was going to say. I was allowed to say it. And then after that meet, uh, that, that presentation, I met with senior representatives of the Iraqi government, basically everybody but Saddam Hussein, again, making the same case, that if you don't allow weapons inspectors back in, there's going to be a war, and this war will terminate your government and destroy your nation, that you really have no choice to let the inspectors back in and fully cooperate with these inspectors. And guess what? With a couple of weeks of my uh, my trip, Saddam Hussein reversed course and formally invited inspectors back in without preconditions. And I thought this was a great thing because now we would have inspectors in place who could actually um, you know verify whether or not there are weapons of uh, mass destruction in Iraq. Um, but that wasn't what the Bush administration wanted. I think history shows that even though the inspectors were given full access to every facility they wanted to inspect and they found nothing to sustain the allegations, indeed, they... Their inspections contradicted the, uh, the the paper presented by the United States of all inspection uh, inspection sites where they thought weapons of mass destruction would be. Inspectors inspected every site, found nothing. Um, you, you'd think that that would be enough for the United States to say, oh, well, we don't need to go to war now. No, we went to war anyways, regardless. Yeah, Colin Powell did his infamous speech before the Security Council, putting forward a manufactured case for war. Uh, we invaded. 
and the rest is history. No weapons of mass destruction were found, and it was a war that we went to on false pretense. But what's interesting is in September 2002, when uh, Joe Biden um, justified his vote, if you recall, he, he slammed me for speaking of compelled access. And yet when he justified his vote, he said, we need to do this so that we can compel Iraq to allow inspectors to return. Well, guess what? Iraq did allow inspectors to return, and the United States uh, didn't believe the results, and we went to war anyways. How does Joe Biden explain that? Well, if the, the president is any guy, Biden w would probably just try to falsify his record, uh, as he has done so far when it comes to the Iraq war vote, and it's stunning to see. So let me ask you, as we wrap, Scott Ritter, as you see Biden now misrepresent his own record, and you see the debate going on and the way uh, the Trump administration's warmongering against uh, Iran is being discussed. What do you think is most important for people to think about in terms of this current presidential race and the candidates we have when it comes to the issue of uh, the U.S. making war in the Middle East? Well, you know, history needs to be our guide. Um, nations and governments tend to act on you know, based upon past patterns of, of behavior. The war with Iraq was a bipartisan war. It was a, you know, the premise for the war was begun by a Republican administration under George H.W. Bush, sustained by a Democratic uh, re, uh, administration, Bill Clinton, and then acted on by a Republican administration under George W. Bush. Um, it, it all had the same po underlying policy, regime change in Iraq. Weapons inspections were nothing more than a justification uh, for war. It wasn't about disarming Iraq. It was about using the threat, the hypothetical threat of weapons of mass destruction to justify a war. Let's fast forward to today. What is the policy of the United States with Iran? Is it disarmament, uh, resolving the nuclear issue, or is it regime change? I think the answer is clear. The policy, a bipartisan policy, regime change. We find that the theocracy that governs Iran to be a threat and that this threat must be removed by eliminating the regime. The nuclear crisis that we have today is a false crisis. It's a fake crisis. We, we do the same thing today that we did back in 2002. In 2002, we said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Iraq represent, represents a threat worthy of war. Today, the, the, the Trump administration building upon him for, uh, you know, past policies of Obama is saying that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapons capability that is worthy of war. Uh, but it's a lie. There is no such threat. There is no such capability. We have inspectors in place who certify that Iran is in full compliance with its obligations regarding a peaceful nuclear program. But the findings of the inspectors isn't good enough because that doesn't sustain the ultimate policy. The ultimate policy is regime change. The inspectors are only useful insofar as they sustain the notion that Iran is a threat. The second the inspectors say Iran's not a threat, there's no problem here, they become an impediment to the larger policy of war. And this is what the American people need to understand, that if we don't get Congress to intervene responsibly and put an end to this nonsense about the hypothetical threat posed by an Iranian nuclear program, which is readily documented as being for exclusively peaceful use. If we continue to pretend that it somehow is a military program that constitutes a threat, there will be a war with Iran, just like in 2000, 2001, 2002, I warned. 
there will be a war with Iraq. People at that time poo-pooed it, said, no, you're overreacting. I'm telling you right now, if we don't change our analytical framework, if we don't embrace embrace fact-based truth about the Iranian nuclear program, there will be a war with Iran. Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector in Iraq, former Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Deal Breaker, Donald Trump and the Unmaking of the Iran Nuclear Deal. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.